We're moving right along in this book, right? Uh, just a little at a time. We're going to look at the story this morning of the woman at the well. And uh, I'm going to need to break it up because I, I, as I was looking at it earlier, I thought, well, you know, I can probably get through this entire story in one Sunday. Um, but the Super Bowl is on, and I know that some of you that's important. Um, so I really probably can't get through this in one Sunday. One of the things I do want to uh, share with you, I think they're coming back today. Um, so I, we told you guys on Wednesday night, but some of you weren't here. Um, Larry, Larry, who plays the drums, his wife, Charlotte, they were down in Red Bluff. They were down in Red Bluff last week, and, and actually I think they're coming back today. But uh, while they were there, they were there to take care of uh, some things for her elder, elderly uh, mother. And, of course, uh, any of us who have parents, they're elderly, so I probably don't need to uh, preface that. But anyway, uh, but while they were down there, her uh, Charlotte's sister passed away unexpectedly. Um, so that kind of prolonged their stay. So we want to continue to remember um, Larry and Charlotte in prayer of, of the loss of her sister. And, of course, with that, let's go ahead and pray for them now, and then we'll get into the study. And so, Father, we do lift up Larry, and we lift up Charlotte to you this morning. And, Lord, we, we thank you that you are the one who provides uh, the peace that passes all understanding. We thank you, Lord, too, that your word tells us that precious in your sight is the death of your saints. And so we commit this situation to you. And we just ask, Lord, that you would continue to be a comfort. We pray that you would give both Larry and Charlotte wisdom to just to navigate the, the different challenges that they will be dealing with now. And uh, we just ask that your spirit be upon them. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So I want to begin in verse 4 and continue to read. I'm going to go ahead and read to you this whole story, although I'm probably going to get to about verse 12 this morning. There is a lot here that I think that we can take notice of and really kind of take to our hearts. But it tells us in verse 4 of chapter 4 in John, says, but he needed to go through Samaria, which is a very important verse. We kind of touched on that last week. But he needed to go through Samaria, so he came to a city in Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. And it was about the sixth hour, which means noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? 
And Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will, come, will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom now, uh, you now have is not your husband. In that you have spoken truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that it is Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what, we do, what you do not know, and we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, that is, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at that point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men, come and see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the, the Christ? Then he went out to the city and came to him. And meanwhile, or in the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this uh, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored, and others have labored and you have entered into their labors. I think we'll stop there. There's a whole lot more we could look at. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we look at the first part of this story. And we thank you, Lord, that you included this encounter with Jesus, this encounter that Jesus had with this woman in scriptures for us to study. And so, Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that we might receive from you that which you have from for us this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. I love that saying, in, or that verse, that is, in 
verse 4, where it said that Jesus must go or had to go into Samaria. And as I brought this up last week, it's this idea of this divine appointment, this, this time by which Jesus knew that there was a special person that he needed to meet, that he needed to talk to. What's interesting, I said a special person that he needed to meet, but the scripture tells us that he knew her before the foundation of the world. And so he was going to get maybe more acquainted with her, although he knew her intimately, being God. And so it's funny that we use these type of terms when we describe Jesus, and they, they really do kind of fall short, don't they? But nonetheless, in the scheme of things, in in his earthly ministry, part of what he was desiring to do was he was desiring to to be able to break down these barriers because of this divine appointment that he had that was given, uh, took place on the sixth hour, which would normally be noon uh, of that day. There are other people who would say this would be six o'clock in the evening, but I, I think uh, the story really kind of reinforces that this was the midday scenario. So Jesus comes to Sychar. Sychar, there, there's a lot of discussion that I read about it. This, it. It could be a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Shechem. That is a possibility. That's one possibility. It's not the only possibility. But that is one of the possibilities. And it is that, that place uh, that is close to a field that Jacob gave to Joseph. Um, and it also tells us that Joseph was buried there. Actually, Joseph was first buried in Egypt when he passed away in Egypt, Joseph being one of the sons of Jacob. And when Joseph was dying, he made them promise that when they were to leave Egypt, that they were to carry his bones and bring them back to the promised land and bury his bones back in the homeland. And this is around the area of where Joseph is buried. It's also the area of Jacob's well. While it is not recorded in the Old Testament, there's some other uh, writings where it talks about this being Jacob's well, and it was a well that was dug, and it really tapped into an underground spring. So incidentally enough, it was this underground spring uh, spring of flowing, also known as living water. And so this woman comes out to get her daily water with this big jug, presumably. It's noon. It's the Middle East. In the Middle East in noon, it's hot. And most often the case, the wells for little cities were down below in a lower area and the city itself was up on a higher area, which means she was able to walk downhill with an empty pot and have to go back uphill with a full pot. Now, ladies, aren't you glad? Men, aren't you glad for that matter? Aren't you glad that uh, we can just reach over and turn on the spigot or the faucet whatever you want to call it, and get water today that we don't have to walk down to the well. It's interesting about the well, this whole idea of someone carrying uh, a, a jar, this big vase, 
for carrying uh, water is that Jesus used that as a marker to identify where they were going to have the Last Supper. And he told them, look for a man carrying a water jug, essentially. And uh, that'll, be, that'll tell you where the place is that you're to go and to prepare the Last Supper, which was probably in an Assyrian quarter of the city. Why? Because men did not normally carry water jugs. That was a chore that was reserved for women. And Essenes did not marry. So the man did not have a wife that he could send to the well. So we had to go get his water himself. But it's interesting, this, this, this idea of water. You know, I've only lived here for 20 years, right? And I lived in a place that was actually drier than here before we moved here, but I didn't live there very long. Lake Tahoe is drier than here. I don't know if you guys realize that or not, but it is. But before that, I lived in the Sacramento Valley, and I'm not proud of it. But anyway, um, but it was much more humid there than it is here, and I'm still affected by the dry air. I just, I just can't, at times it feels like I can't get enough water. And, um, you know, I, I'm, you know, stay hydrated and trying to, trying to keep enough water in my system. But it, it reminds me of this idea of the living water that is a life-giving substance. But, you know, you, you can live without a lot of things, but you can only live a few days without water. And what a uh, life-giving substance that it is. Also, representation, we will see this later. I'm getting ahead of myself, but we will see this later in John chapter 7. The living water, which is a symbol of whom? It's the third person in the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. And how it is that we need the infilling of the Holy Spirit to give us that spiritual life. When we pray and ask Christ into our hearts, into our lives, the Holy Spirit comes in and takes residence literally inside of us. And we receive that living water, that life-giving presence of God's Holy Spirit. What I find fascinating here in verse 6, it says, Now Jacob's well was there, it says, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat down thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Jesus was tired. Now, how, why would he be tired if he's God? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't, seriously. He was in a human form. He, he is, in my opinion, he is 100% God, 100% man. And there are those who would tell me, well, he was just pretending. He was pretending? That doesn't make any sense at all. And it is very hard for me, I think, to really attempt to separate Jesus in his humanity Jesus in his deity. And as I told you, I think last week I told you, he wasn't a junior God while he was on the earth, all right? He, he veiled his deity, but he didn't take a lower position other than assuming human nature as well. And so you have this incredible interplay between 
And to me, that's what's so fascinating about the incarnation. God in the flesh is he had things like he did get tired. He was thirsty. I find it fascinating that he's in the middle of another story of Jesus and the disciples as they're going across the Sea of Galilee and the storm comes up and, and the, 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 the disciples are scared to death. Now, these guys are fishermen. They're on their home waters. They're seasoned fishermen. They know how to handle a boat. They know how to handle uh, the waves. They know how to handle being out there in, in adverse weather. And, and they're scared to death. And what is Jesus doing? Remember the story? He's sleeping. And it says they had to wake him up. He wasn't pretending to sleep. Now, does God ever sleep? I mean, these are, I think about, I don't know if you ever think about these things, but I think about these things, and, this, and how do you separate them? But it says he was sleeping, and as soon as he woke up, what did he do? He calmed the storm. He calmed the sea. He calmed the wind. I wonder, it doesn't say in the story, but I wonder if he went back and got a few more winks before they got, well, actually, he didn't because he, immediately they came to shore, if you remember that story. But you have this strange interplay between God in the flesh, who really did have a mortal body, really did suffer death, really did deal with the bodily weaknesses of being human. He was tempted in all things, Hebrews tells us. He was tempted in all things like we are yet, what? Without sin. Now that fascinates me. If he was tired, if he was thirsty, being tempted in all things as we are yet without sin, that really fascinates me. Because I'm thinking, wow, he really could have ruled the world, couldn't he? He could have ruled the world. One day he will. We know that. But that was not his mission at that time. And yet he came and he ushered in the kingdom of God. Another, another, another lesson for another time. But he ushered in the kingdom of God that is here. New Testament is very clear on this. The kingdom of God is here, but it is not yet here in its fullness. So he goes to Sychar. And he begins to break down the barriers. He begins to break down the barriers. There was an incredible hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. More so of the Jews toward the Samaritans than the Samaritans toward the Jews. At least history would bear that out. If you look at the dialogue here, this woman is speaking respectfully to Jesus. She addresses him. It's translated in the English, sir. It's really derived from the word kurios, which could also be translated what? Lord. She's treating him with respect here. And yet there was this tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. I talked about it last week. 
There is the idea that the Jews would not even go through the area of Samaria from when they traveled from Jerusalem to the Galilee or back. Some of them did, some of them didn't. The idea that none of them would ever go through Samaria is an urban myth. Because if you cross the eastern, to the eastern side of the Jordan River to avoid Samaria, what land did you end up in? You ended up in full-on Gentile territory. So what was worse, the Gentiles or the Samaritans that were, they were half Jewish, half something else? But nonetheless, they did not get along. There was a lot of tension. The Jews considered the Samaritans basically like they considered the Gentiles. They considered them kindling for the fires of hell. And that's what they were used, their use was, uh, uh, was for. But he's breaking down, Jesus is breaking down these hostile barriers between the Jews and the Samaritans. And it, it's, it, it fascinates me because, because there are, I think we all have certain people groups that we can be leery of. That we can, be, because of perhaps past bad experiences, we kind of have our guard up a little bit. See, the thing is, though, with the Jews, they wouldn't even let the Samaritans into the, uh, into the inner courts of the temple. So the Samaritans finally gave up on that idea of going to Jerusalem, and they established the temple in Mount Jerusalem, which the Jews, by the way, destroyed. So they had to build another one. The thing is, and and I've I've seen this and it's it, I've seen this for years. People get saved. And we thank God that they do. And they may or may not have lived a, a very sinful life before they became a Christian. But then they get saved. And they go from that honeymoon period of just being happy that they've been saved, happy in Jesus, to all of a sudden they start getting judgmental. And they start seeing what other people do that they don't do. And they begin to judge them. And they begin to see, they begin to see their, their status as, well, I've been chosen by God. And so I, I, I find favor in God. That's what the Jews did. Uh, they saw themselves, I'm a, I'm a purebred Jew. I'm not like these other people. I have an advantage. And so we can tell ourselves these things. And we end up at a place where we begin to construct a sense of who is in, who is out, and it may not have anything to do with the gospel. It may not have anything to do with what the Bible teaches. It's the same thing with the social restrictions between men and women. 
Jews, particularly the stricter Jews, the Pharisees, would not only not speak to a woman in public, the more stricter Pharisees would not even speak to their wife in public. Now, now think about that. They, they had a very, very low opinion of women back in those days. And so when the disciples, we read it already, when the disciples return from town and they see Jesus talking to this woman, they're thinking, what in the world are you doing? Why are you talking to her? One, she's a, Maritan, she's a Samaritan. Two, she's a woman. You don't do that. That's what I love about the story of the woman who had the issue with blood for 12 years to touch the hem of the garment of the rabbi. You don't do that. And think about this, guys. God creates Adam, and he knew that he wasn't complete without Eve. He understood that. It is not good that man be alone. So he creates Eve. And, and what happened, it, just like with the Samaritans, the Jews began to construct these social ideas, these cultural ideas of that which is right and that which is wrong. Jesus talked about this and condemned them over this in the book of Matthew chapter 15 and in Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, I'll read to you. I have it in front of me in around, around verse 6. It says, he answered and he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You don't walk through Samaria, and you don't talk to a woman. Are those commandments? Are those doctrines? They're commandments of men. They're not commandments of God. But they became doctrine. They became the common accepted rules of that culture. Having nothing to do with the Bible. And whenever we turn anybody into that other person, We can be honoring God with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. See, this really fascinates me. That he would go and talk to a Samaritan woman who, she's already got two strikes against her right now, right? If we think a baseball analogy. Some of you are already getting ready for spring training, I know. But anyway... And then to make it worse, she's been married five times. Now she's living with a dude.
And yet the Lord asked her. Don't miss this. The Lord asked her to serve him with a drink of water. Which means he was going to have to touch what she touched. He was going to have to handle what she had handled. Which was another thing you didn't do if you were a good Jew. Because if anything, she was ceremonially unclean. But Jesus is breaking down these barriers. The social restrictions between men and women. I'll get in trouble for this, but I don't care. When Paul says there's no difference between Jew and Greek, free and slave, male and female, he meant there was no difference. I'm just going to throw that out there and leave it to you. Let, let you wrestle with that one. And we've created all these differences and all these little stupid rules that we try to follow that quite frankly will not bear out the Scriptures well in a, us attempting to do so. Romans 15. Right around verse 9 and following. I'll go back up to verse 7. It says, Therefore receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, that is the Jews, for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the fathers or the patriarchs, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, for this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That's a quote from Psalm 18, verse 49. And again, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That's out of Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. Psalm 117, verse 1. And then from Isaiah chapter 1, There will be a root of Jesse, who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles shall have hope. And then he caps it off. He says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it was in the Hebrew Scriptures that the Gentiles were to be included into the things of the kingdom of God. I've had, I've had so many people tell me that, and, and they use the triumphal entry as that benchmark as if, if the Jews had received Jesus, then he never would have turned to the Gentiles to begin with. That's, that's nonsense. That doesn't bear out what the Old Testament has spoken. The Gentiles were not a plan B. 
There are no two people economies within the kingdom of God. We are all equal. Whether we believe it or not, we're all equal. That's our eternal reality, folks. So if the kingdom of God is here, but not yet here in its fullness, isn't that how we are to live today? Isn't that how we are to live today? And understanding our equality? Jesus had no problem talking to this woman. Jesus had no problem asking this woman to minister to him and give him a cup of water. It's interesting because I, I read to you out of, out of Mark and then out of Romans. And Mark kind of refers to what Jesus is saying. He's referring back to Isaiah 29, where it said, And the Lord said, Because these people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is, is a commandment taught by men. Their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. That's the English Standard Version for you on that one. And I find that to be fascinating. I, I, I talked with a guy not long ago, and he tells me every time he studies his Bible that he has to open up a commentary, and he reads the Bible, then reads the Bible, and he reads the commentary. Now, commentaries are good, and I read them. But, but you know what I really like is just to read the Bible and, and let the Spirit of God begin to speak to you. And sometimes I'll admit, it's the Spirit of God, and sometimes it was the, the coffee that I had earlier that morning, you know. And, but, but nonetheless, sometimes mistakes are the best thing that can happen to us. Because we learn to, we learn to hear what the voice of the Holy Spirit truly is and what it is not, if we're open to learning that. So he asked this woman for a drink. And again, she pushes back on him. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She has no idea who she's talking to. We know that, right? It's pretty obvious. I remember it was a situation, I can't remember the full situation, but I, I remember somebody was, uh, was telling me about somebody else and, 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 and claiming that, that they recognized a situation where the Spirit of God was working. And I said to him, I said, you know, that person wouldn't know spiritual if it bit them in the nose. And some people are really, they're really just like that. They've got some kind of weird, almost ethereal understanding of the movement of the Spirit of God. But here this woman is standing before God the flesh, and she has no idea who he is. He will slowly begin to reveal himself to her. And I think we need to understand that about lost people, even Christians. You know what you know because of the Spirit of God that dwells in you, correct? 
Okay, a few people shake your head. All right, okay. Some of you are still working out that one out. Either that or you're not awake. Coffee's in the back if you need some. But anyway, uh, or here. But, um, but anyway, you know what you know because the Spirit of God has revealed it to you. How is it that we expect them to understand at the same level that we understand if they're not even saved? How can they understand? Well, Romans touches on this. How will they know unless they hear? And how will they hear unless there is whom? A preacher. Is that referring to me? No, it's referring to you, by the way. It's referring to all of us, all right? It's referring to all of us. I got some looks on that one. Anyway, but it is. How will they hear? uh, No, unless they hear. How will they hear unless there is a preacher? How will there be a preacher unless he or she be sent? And the opportunity that we have to be light, to be salt, to be the city on a hill toward those who don't have any idea of the incredible love of God that the Lord has for them. And so he does, she doesn't understand why you, are, why you are a Jew and you're talking to me. We don't have any dealings with each other. And Jesus answered and said to her in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? And then she asked him, the, the, really, what a dumb question. Are you greater than Jacob? Well, yeah. Are you greater than Jacob? But So what, the, the funny thing is, why is there a reference to Jacob? Who is Jacob? Is, he got his name changed, by the way, right? Jacob, who is the son of whom? Isaac, all right. Abraham was his grandfather. He had his name changed to whom? Israel, okay? He's Israel, all right? Why did she mention him? There's a common denominator here between the Samaritans and the Jews that she recognizes. Now, Jesus already understood this, of course. But the disciples didn't, possibly. Of course, they're in town buying bread and fruit or whatever, right? But there's that common denominator of that common cultural heritage and, and those are the things, guys, that we can build upon as we share our faith with others. You know, I, I, I love it and I hate it when people say, oh, they find out I'm a pastor. I hate when they find out I'm a pastor a lot of times because they usually want to tell me everything or tell me nothing. But anyway, either that or I, I hear about the uncle or the great uncle that was a pastor at some church Midwest somewhere. And, you know, and that's fine. But, you know, I try to use that as a bridge, a point of connection. 
You know, and sometimes we say, well, tell me more about your uncle or great uncle or whoever, right? And, and try to use these things because the thing is, is I am convinced that the Spirit of God never leaves himself without a witness. He never leaves himself without a witness. And if you find yourself in a conversation with an unbeliever and, and, and the conversation starts to shift towards spiritual things and you sense that that person is curious about the things of God, chances are, I'd give you about 10 to 1 odds on this. I don't bet, but I'd throw it out there for you anyway, right? Chances are that the Holy Spirit has already been doing some work in this person's heart already. And for us to kind of tap into that which the Spirit has already been doing rather than to attempt to try to reinvent the wheel. This is how we can share with people. Because, and I've told you that, I haven't told you this in a long time. And some of you, I don't think you were even here when I said this last. Everybody has a philosophy. Everybody. Even if they don't want to admit it even if they have no idea what it is. Everybody has a philosophy, and everybody has a theology. They all do. Even if their theology is no God. Atheism, by its definition, is a theology, by the way. A theology of no God. Okay? It's parasitic, by the way, because it depends upon a God that doesn't exist, which makes no sense. Some of you are thinking that one through. Okay, good. Um, anyway, are you greater than Jacob, the common ancestry between the Jews and the Samaritans? See, that, that's, that's the place to break down the middle wall of separation that Paul talked about between the Jews and the Greeks. And so, she wants to have this living water given to her so that He doesn't have to go to the well anymore. I got ahead of myself. That's verse 15 because Jesus answers in verse 13. says, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of, of water springing up into everlasting life. And so she wants the water so she doesn't have to go to the well anymore. She didn't really hear this, did she? Where'd the everlasting life thing kind of drop off the map there somewhere? But it did. She's thinking material. He's obviously speaking spiritually. But she's still listening. She's still engaging. She wants this water so that she doesn't have to go to the well anymore. Notice... I get the impression she believed that he could pull this off. Somehow, in some way. Give me this water so I won't thirst anymore. Sounds like she was tired of going to the well. Now, granted, she came at noon. I'm going to touch on that some more next week. She's there in the heat of the day carrying this water jack uphill, going all by herself every day. Or at least that's what it appeared. But Jesus obviously is speaking to her 
spiritually. This idea of drinking water, is, this idea of water is the source of life. Now, remember, they live in the desert also. But they live in a hotter desert, right, in the Mediterranean. This is probably May or June. Because remember, in John 3, it was Passover. This is somewhere around May or It's hot there. In that, in, that, in that time of year. Well, it's hot there most of the time, actually, but it actually can snow. But anyway, I'm not here to give you a weather report. But um, Jesus brings her back to the core question of this idea of water and thirst, and he does so, basically, in bringing it to her with this idea of, I want to give you something that will quench your thirst. She's thinking physically. He's speaking spiritually. Now, he's going to turn it into spiritual real fast when he tells her to go get her husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. He says, well, you've spoken well because you've had five. Now the guy you're living with is not your husband. And she's totally blown away. She then recognizes that she's dealing with somebody who is not just a mere human. She doesn't understand that he has gotten the flesh yet. But now she's starting to put some pieces together because this whole idea of the living water. And Jesus is referring to many places. I'm going to read a few of them to you this morning and then we'll be done. But Jesus is referring to to this illustration that's given us in the Old Testament of the idea of not only water to quench our physical thirst, but water that is given, that is this living water, this this spiritual water, representation of the Holy Spirit that is given to quench uh, our thirst spiritually. The big question is, are you thirsty spiritually? Are you thirsty spiritually? And how easy is it to quench that thirst with things that satisfy for a little bit? But then you find that you're thirsty again. Boy, I'm tempted to pick on a whole bunch of things right now, but I'm not going to do any of them. I'm just going to let you wrestle with that. I think we all have that hungering and that thirsting. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be what? They will be filled, Jesus said. They will be filled if they come to the source of the living water, that is. Because there's all kinds of things that are out there that are vying for your attention, your time, you to indulge in, even some good things you to indulge in that may satisfy for a little bit, but they don't continue to satisfy. In Psalm 36, verse 9, it says, For with you, that is with God, is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. What, what, I, what I love about this is this illustration because Jesus is taking this right out of the Old Testament and he's, he's taking this from the book of Isaiah, I believe as well. Isaiah 55, I'm going to turn there. Isaiah 55, beginning with the first verse. I'll read to you verse 1, one of my favorite words in the Old Testament. Ho, right? 
H-O, exclamation point. Ho, everyone who thirsts. That is, pay attention. That's what it means, all right? I don't know why the English have to translate it ho, but that's what they did. All right. Uh, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come by and eat. You who have no money, come by and eat. Is that a paradox? It's almost like an oxymoron, isn't it? You know, oxy, you know what an oxymoron is, right? Like military intelligence, jumbo shrimp. I'll, I'll stop while I'm ahead. But anyway, um, you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. And let your soul delight itself in abundance. Listen carefully to me, it says, and eat what is good and let your soul delight in abundance. I hope you guys spend time in prayer every day with God. And, and what I have found in my own life, that that is not an easy thing to do. Because I will sit down and I will begin a time of prayer. I, I, I told you this in the past. I often use a prayer book, and it has a lot of scripture, usually a Psalms, usually a prophet, usually a gospel, sometimes some of Paul's writings. Uh, but every time I sit down to pray, you know what I'm tempted to do? I'm going to check my email. I haven't checked my email yet. And how many people have sent me an email overnight? All right? I don't know about you, but I get close to 50 a day. I mean, they're, usually they're junk mail. But anyway, i got to go check my email. I don't want to pray right now. And then I, I may go check my email. And I'm like, oh, i got to go pray. Yeah, but I want another cup of coffee. I haven't had a cup of coffee in 20 minutes. You know, I mean, you know, I, I mean so y- y- we, do, we have these battles Yet Isaiah says to us, listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight in itself in abundance. And, and, and I've been doing some reading on some of this, and I've found this even in my own experience. Probably the hardest thing we do as Christians is probably pray. Unless we're in a world of hurt. And if we're in a world of hurt, it turns into, oh, God, right? You, you guys, and, I mean, that, that's biblical. I understand that. And, 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 yes, if you have an issue that, that you need God to intercede on, definitely be praying. I'm not saying don't do that. But that seems to be the easier time to pray when, when life is really not a whole lot of fun. But when you're going about your daily weekly, monthly routine and everything's fine and it seems like the road is fairly level, I think often it, praying is the hardest thing we can do because there are so many things that call our attention. Like, I've got to go check my email. Anyway, check my email. You know, it doesn't make any sense. But, but it's, it's part of the warfare. What's interesting about this in verse 5 of Isaiah 55, it says, Surely you shall call a nation you do not know and the nations who you do not know shall run to you because of Yahweh your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Now, in verse 5, and actually in 4, it's a shift. It's, it's really a, a declaration to the Messiah. It, it's, it's the Father speaking to the Son here. 
earlier he's speaking to his people, but then it shifts, and the father is speaking to his son. That's why it says, because of Yahweh your God and the Holy One of Israel, he has glorified you, and the nations who you do, uh, do not know shall run to you. See, it was always in the plan of God to include whosoever. And as I love to say, and I know that some of you get kind of miffed about it, there's one tree in the book of Romans, not two. There is one tree. There's the olive tree, the natural branches that were broke off, the wild branches that were broken back in. We look forward to a day, one day, when the natural branches are regrafted in. There's one tree, one people of God. See, the thing is, and I'm going to close with this, Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah, this is a, we probably ought to do that one after, I, after uh, Ecclesiastes. I don't know. Jeremiah is hard, though. Well, so is Ecclesiastes, right? Okay. But Jeremiah, it, you have this guy who's a prophet, and, and the, 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 tr- the nation of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, is about to be taken under siege by um, the Babylonians. They're about to l- completely be decimated. And, and Jeremiah, who is the weeping prophet, is weeping over the city of Jerusalem, but he's also telling them to surrender to the Babylonians, and they will be good to you. Even though you will go into exile, they will be good to you. And, and uh, the king of Judah had these false prophets were saying, don't listen to Jeremiah, stand up to these Babylonians. We're going to fight them off. God's going to defeat them. All this is going to happen. And the true prophet, the one only true prophet of Judah at that time was Jeremiah. And God was telling him to tell his people, surrender. But who wants to do that? But it had been ordained that they were to go into captivity because, among other things, they had not recognized the year of Jubilee. And God said the land needs 70 years of rest. So Jeremiah, the mouthpiece of God, and it says here in Jeremiah chapter 2, God speaking, it says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of of living waters and hewn or dug themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see, that, that, again, that takes us back to what the Lord declared in Isaiah 55. Listen carefully and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Ho to everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come and buy and partake. But they forsook the living waters. Referring to the presence of God, referring to the Spirit of God, referring not only to His presence, not only to the Spirit, but His ministering effect upon the people. In other words, they did not want to hear the voice of the Spirit. They wanted to hear their own voice instead they wanted to instead of proverbs 3 lean not on your own understanding they decided that they wanted to lean on their own understanding and then the people went back to a period of time as described in the book of judges where it says that every man did what was right in his own eyes kind of like today 
Kind of like today. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, Jesus said. Referring to the water in the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into eternal life. Receive that which the Lord has for you. Receive that living water that he offers to you that is able to quench your spiritual thirst. And I realize I'm talking to Christians this morning. And we've received it, and yet at the same time, Living, flowing water, not stagnant water, water that is moving. The Lord wants to continue to give you the freshness of his Holy Spirit. He wants to continue to have you receive that living water that will spring up in you unto a fountain of water springing up into eternal life. And so, and so that perhaps that when that day comes, and it'll happen for each of us when that day comes, when we leave this body, and we go into God's presence, it'll be such a natural, normal transition of our own soul because we've partaken of the living water that has sprung up as a fountain in our soul unto eternal life. An incredible metaphor when you think about what Jesus is saying here. That we are so full of the Spirit of God that that transition from this body into the presence of God just is almost seamless. And it'll be a time that we don't fear death we know that the timing would be right because we are that connected with the Lord and we trust what he's doing in our lives, including our own death. Which I think a lot more about than I ever used to, being that I'm now in my 40s. Um, yeah, in my 60s, but nonetheless... that I may know him, Paul wrote, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed unto his death, that I may obtain unto the resurrection of the dead. 